This episode of the Great War Podcast is brought to you by Audible. The good people at Audible are offering you, the listeners of the Great War Podcast, a free audiobook download when you sign up for a no-cost 30-day trial membership. You can qualify for this offer by going to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. Whether it's for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 device, Audible has over 150,000 titles to choose from. If there's ever been a book you've wanted to read, but just can't stay awake long enough to read it, Audible has got you covered. There's something here for everyone. Have a browse through their catalog, and I'm sure you'll find something right up your alley. Two weeks from now, the Great War Podcast will be celebrating its one-year anniversary. So this week, I'm going to recommend a book which was indispensable to me when I first began to plot this behemoth out. The War That Ended Peace by Margaret Macmillan. A fascinating discussion of the complex situation in Europe between the years 1882 and 1914. Not only was Macmillan a go-to source for episodes on the Entente Cordiale and Franco-Russian alliance, but she excels in bringing the men and women behind those achievements to life. Guys like Bismarck, Delcasse, Vita, and Gray, they're all here. Whenever I want to remind myself of who or what made someone tick, this is one of the first books I reach for. So when you're done with this episode, remember to go to audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast. No capitals, no spaces. That again is audibletrial.com forward slash gwarpodcast for your free audiobook. Hello, and welcome to The Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 33, No Success Anywhere. Although from the German perspective, the Battle of Verdun had gotten off to a promising start, the momentum of the contest was beginning to swing by the end of its first week. From February the 21st until the fall of Fort Douaumont on the 25th, the attacking 5th Army appeared nearly invincible. With close artillery support at hand, their advance was rapid and disciplined. By the 27th of February, the 1st Infantry had reached the foothills of the eastern Meuse Heights, and it appeared at any moment their objective, the Tavernez-Souville-Foyterie access, would be in their hands. The French, it seemed, and very nearly so, had lost their will to put up a fight. The 72nd and 51st Divisions, having met the blunt of the attack near the sector near Beaumont, were shot to pieces and north of the citadel, the first wounded were making their way behind the lines. Those in Verdun itself could tell right away that something horrible had happened. These were not the smiling and formidable men they were used to seeing. The hammerfall of Monday morning had brought the carnage to a new level. Physical wounds, torn flesh, and shattered bones were easy to identify, but the look in their eyes told of an even more harrowing experience. On top of the physical, the barrage of that morning took its toll mentally. Concussive blasts drove many to the point of madness. Nervous systems collapsed, and men walked to the hunched posture, unable to speak as if a premature rigor mortis had set in. Shell shock was widely reported, and the exhausted and overworked nursing staff could find little to help, a shot of rum to calm the nerves if they were lucky. All told, when General Frederick Hare ordered the evacuation of Verdun, it was the logical step, just give the whole thing up for good, and at Chantilly, Joseph Joffre concurred. Verdun was not Paris, it was not Marseille, nor was it Lyon. It had no strategic or moral significance. 
Most French men and women knew little of Verdun or its history, and few believed that a titanic struggle over a bunch of old forts would be of anyone's benefit. In newspapers on both sides, what was unfolding there seemed a bit off, and critics wondered why their leaders had gambled so much. But as we know, the premier, Aristide Briand, understood that now was not the time for such discussions. The Germans had attacked, and giving them even an inch of French soil was unacceptable. After reigning his commander-in-chief, Zosivzhov called on General Philippe Pétain, who took over the Verdun sector in the early morning of February the 25th, just hours after the capture of Fort Douaumont. Under Pétain, a major reorganizing of the salient's defense was undertaken, and the German juggernaut was slowly checked. Manpower and supplies, making their way north by the sacred way, were being poured into the sector, 23,000 tons of supplies and 190,000 men by the first week of March. Soon, French artillery amassed on the west bank of the Meuse began to thunder in response to the German approach. The barks of 75, 155, and 240mm cannons caused the invaders to stumble. Shell craters overlapped shell craters, and the German artillery had difficulty relocating from the enfilade. By February the 27th, a stalemate had settled in. With Pétain at the helm, the French response was exactly what Erich von Falkenhayn had intended. Both the main attacks stalled at the Meuse Heights, no further gains could be taken. Something would have to give. Despite the cloud of doubt which settled on Falkenhayn's shoulder, the chief of the general staff was actually kind of pleased with the overall progress thus far. The advance had pretty much gone according to plan. The ferocious bombardment of February the 21st had broken the French lines, and the 5th Army advance had captured Douaumont, and the 1st units were at the base of the Meuse Heights by the 27th. So in six days, the first phase of Operation Judgment was about 90% complete. Although on paper it seemed like a success, Falkenhayn could not ignore how serious things could become if the Meuse Heights remained in French hands. Without them, his infantry would be exposed to all sorts of enemy artillery, and with French batteries being formed on the west bank, Pétain's second army could continue to harass their positions. It was clear that things were starting to bog down at the most crucial of times, and Falkenhayn's belief in budgeting manpower was beginning to butt heads with the reality on the ground. At his headquarters, the chief mused over the situation, and his original optimism was slowly replaced with a realistic pessimism. If the advance had already run its course, and the 5th Army could penetrate no deeper, then Falkenhayn believed the offensive element of the operation should be brought to a close. Instead of pressing on, troops would dig in and consolidate their positions, while the remaining reserves would be mobilized to meet the expected Anglo-French counterattack, which Falkenhayn assumed would begin at any moment now. But instead of waiting around, the 5th Army Chief of Staff, Konstantin von Nobelsdorf, had come up with another option. Having seen the initial advance up close, Nobelsdorf suggested on the 29th of February that with the units on the east bank stalled, a new frontier should be opened onto the west. The 5th Army Chief had calculated that with the bulk of French reserves being committed to the east, the western bank was ripe for the taking, and could be done without dipping too deep into the reserve pool. This is starting to sound like a broken record, I know, but the quick-fix solution was music to Falkenhayn's ears. As we've seen, Falkenhayn was not the most popular figure in the German high command, and he was aware that having pushed for Verdun since January 1915, abandoning it now would cause his enemies to congregate. Although he initially believed any extension onto the West Bank was too ambitious, he was convinced when Nobelsdorf, backed by Crown Prince Wilhelm, assured him that even a small-scale operation would force Pétain into a fight-or-flight mentality. A wider front would demand more manpower, and they knew the French could not risk their left flank. If all went well, the extended front would act as a giant suction cup, draining their lifeblood with every turn of the crank. 
With reports hinting that the Second Army was near peak strength, Peitain would have no choice but to commit more reserve to the fray, thus speeding up the bleeding phase, phase two, of Falconine's strategy. At least, that was the theory anyway. To prepare for the West Bank operations, Falconine authorized the release of two divisions and 25 artillery batteries under the command of General Heinrich von Gossler, the mastermind of the February 21st barrage. Their objective was remarkably similar to the original orders of that opening day. Peyton had skillfully masked his artillery on a reverse slope behind the Mare Ridge, out of sight and out of mind for the German guns on the east. So Gossler's task was to capture a series of plateaus, just a few kilometers north of the ridge itself. I redid last week's map to reflect this, so be sure to go to thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com if you're interested in knowing where these things are. The terrain on the west bank was the exact opposite to that of the east. Instead of uneven and forested, the west bank offered similar ground to what we saw during the Battles of Luz. It was open and flat, which made any elevation crucial real estate. Mari Ridge was too far south for an initial assault, and owing to the quick-fix solution, attached by a Nobelsdorf and Falkenhayn, Gossler's objectives were instead a series of hills to the north and northwest. To do this, Gossler organized the assault to take place in two phases. Beginning on March the 6th, the first attacking corps were to seize the main objective, Mort Holm, in the smaller hill 265 to the north. With an elevation of 295 meters, Mordholm was the eyes and ears of the French guns on the west bank, so Gossler needed to capture the post before any advances could be made. Once secure, phase 2, beginning on March 9th, was to attack west of the initial objectives, and capture Hill 304 and the town of Avoucourt, securing their left flank from French counterattacks. But again, that was the theory anyway. Beginning on March the 6th, from 8am until noon, the opening barrage pulverized the French lines. All the heavy guns were brought in. 280s, 305s, 420s, plus a separate barrage of 13,000 mortar rounds and chlorine gas shells. The weight of the bombardment cut off communication on the French lines, and the commander in the sector, Henri Berthelot, was isolated from Peyton's headquarters. At 11.50 a.m., Gossler's infantry began their assault. Initial gains were good. 3,000 dazed prisoners fell into captivity on the first day alone, and the forward 67th Division was nearly annihilated but units further south were beginning to put up fierce resistance. Peyton had beaten Gossler to the punch, and had already positioned four divisions further south. German reinforcements, expected to help push the assault on Mordholm, were held up near Regenville. With his army scattered, Gossler was unable to push forward, and supporting artillery was no longer as centralized. As per Peyton's order of the day, French infantry were soon counterattacking with everything they had, and a back-and-forth momentum was beginning to settle in. 75mm artillery and machine guns tore into the German ranks, and any attempts made against their positions were met immediately with zealous counterattacks time and time again. The 24cm French guns targeted the weight of their fire to German rear areas, causing chaos behind the lines and silencing their 30 and 42cm Big Bertha howitzers. The fighting now resembled something out of the Napoleonic era. Tens of thousands of men sardined into a killing field less than 4 kilometers wide, while mobile cannons targeted the battlefield with a rain of steel. Casualties for both armies were beginning to mount. One French soldier, recalled his unit of 800 men, were sent to replace a battalion which had lost 800 of their own in under 24 hours. As this was still early March, the weather predictably took a turn for the worse, and heavy rains turned Mort home into a muddy swamp. Artillery became almost obsolete, as shells were simply absorbed into the muck, only to explode sometime later. Some still lay there today. 
Personal weapons, grenades, rifles, bayonets, flamethrowers, and mortars became the tool for attacking infantry. The fighting was close quarter, and gains measured in meters came at the cost of entire regiments. It took until the 14th of March before the Germans were able to carve out a foothold on Mordholm, but the crest would remain in French hands until late May. Even then, Mordholm would be the site of some of the most vicious fighting throughout the entire battle, and the French would not fully reclaim it until August 1917, just an example of how prolonged the Battle of Verdun truly was. Because Gosler was late getting to Mordholm, it inevitably spelt doom for the second phase of the attack, which did not get underway until March the 20th, 11 days behind schedule. Of course, the attacks of the 9th had tipped off local commanders, and Peyton authorized a new defensive line dug in along a key ridge, the beautifully named Termite Hill, where Gosler's infantry were pinned down by frantic artillery and machine gun fire. Again, events played out in mirror to those since the beginning of the battle, and by the 30th of March, the attempts to take the western heights had ground to a halt. Despite 20,000 casualties, Gosler was unable to take Hill 304, and the West Bank operation had failed to penetrate deep enough to change the overall strategic picture. If Erich von Falkenhayn had gotten his way, the Battle of Verdun probably would have ended right then and there. Nubelsdorf had assured him that with Mort home under heel, it would release the stalemated forces on the opposite bank. But now things were a lot more complicated. Horrified by the appalling casualty lists, Falkenhayn realized he had just stuck both his hands in the mud with no hope of freeing one without the other. Under Peyton, the French were committing whole divisions to counterattacks. Remember, this was what Falkenheit had hoped, but in the race for topographical advantage, they were beating him at every turn, and the fighting was becoming no more decisive than at Ypres or Artois. An example of this occurred in the east, when German troops infiltrated the Vouvre Plain, to the extreme right of Verdun on the 24th of February. The fighting in the Vouvre Plain was centered around Fort Vaux, which exchanged hands 13 times in March alone. Similar situations occurred at Mordhom, Tavernez, and Souville. The difficulty was that once a position was taken, it needed to be consolidated by further secondary attacks, hence why Hill 304 and Avrucourt were to follow the capture of Mordhom. But the policy of aggressive defense under Baitan assured that no German would sleep quietly. Fifth Army infantry soon learned that once a position was taken, they could expect immediate counterattacks from the now well-stocked defense. With Pétain's system of rotation, pulling units in and out when casualties got too high, the French 2nd Army were able to sustain themselves despite mounting losses. It's simply staggering, but by the end of the year, 78% of the regiments in the French Army, 259 of 330, would be sent to Verdun at one point or another. By July the 1st, 66 divisions had been through rotation, while the German 5th were limited to just 48. It is of no surprise then that the 5th Army gains in the opening days came equally as a result of helpless defense than tactical skill of the invaders. However, back at Falkenhayn's HQ, a curious thing was happening. Despite their previous reserves about the campaign, Crown Prince Wilhelm and Nubelsdorf were starting to believe in Falkenhayn's strategy, while the chief himself was having his doubts. With both West and East Bank operations gone kaput, the chief of the general staff believed the 5th Army had failed. Falkenhayn maintained that if this was the extent of the German advance, as in there was no way to push on to the Meuse Heights without further losses, then maybe using the remaining reserves to launch a second theater elsewhere was not such a bad idea. But the Crown Prince and Nubelsdorf, contrary to later recollections, were becoming quite the pair of optimists. Both 5th Army leaders believed, incorrectly, that Peyton was nearing the end of his manpower pool. Indeed, one of the oft-forgotten side effects of Peyton's command was that French casualties were greater throughout the battle, already over 90,000 to 80,000 German. 
but Crown Prince Wilhelm and Nubelsdorf were taking it at face value. All they heard was that French losses were higher and that with every set battle, Pétain was running low. Falkenhayn was then convinced not to give up the ghost quite yet, but really, there was no other option but to continue. Like we saw during our discussions on Gallipoli, the front at Verdun was incredibly small. Unlike the Battle of the Somme, whose front stretched 75 kilometers north-south, the entire Verdun front was only half that, so troop concentration was incredibly tight. The depth of French artillery were in range of German rest and supply areas, and likewise, German shells continued to smash the citadel from a distance. The two armies formed a Venn diagram, and snagged each other in a death grip, making withdrawal impossible. Simply put, there was no backing away now. After a final attempt to break the deadlock on April the 9th, the Battle of Verdun was settling into its characteristic form. From April 9th to 14th, fighting erupted on both east and west banks as the 5th Army attempted to straighten the line. But poor weather, again, brought it to a halt in just 5th days without much change. The French clung to their positions as German attacks were checked and then counterattacked immediately after. With so many troops packed into such a small area, the main arm of the battle was fought with artillery. And of the enduring images of Verdun, the shell-blasted landscape is the most memorable. Falkenhayn's strategy for the operation was to bleed the French into submission, but for the millions of men who had experienced Verdun to make that vision come true, Verdun only offered terror and death. The landscape had become a scene of unworldly and nauseating horror. Entire towns were flattened. Hill 304 would later be renamed Hill 297, as artillery exchanges reduced its height by 7 meters. The fighting around Mordholm on the west bank was so intense that the ground was scorched beyond repair, and it later became known as the town that died for France. Forests were blasted to splinters, leaving nothing but stumps and brown morass. Shell craters, some 25 meters in diameter, gouged the earth time and time again, and when it rained, became death traps for men who trailed off or found themselves thrown from their feet. Those unlucky enough to be sent to Verdun recalled with horror that they found themselves walking over remains of friend and foe alike, and the smell of decay and nitrates hung like a perfume, sinking into food and drink. A German soldier recalled that he found it impossible to imagine a more appalling corner of the earth, and a French officer called it the most horrible wretched corner of the front. One of the most disturbing aspects of the battle came from grave detail. Because of the high volume of shells, single graves cannot be dug. Too often, shell impacts exhume the bodies, leaving them exposed to torment the living. One particular account recalls an instance where after a shell impact, survivors had gone to check the wounded, only to find that among them were remains of troops who had been killed in 1914. The shells rip open and disinter the dead and send them past your face in shreds, one veteran would later write home. Relief operations could only take place at night, and to borrow a passage from Paul Jankowski, quote, The journey into the front lines was a descent into the land of the dead, who greeted the living and even flung themselves as they approached, end quote. Worst of all, it was the mud which added another layer of misery. Under such conditions, veterans took it with a soldier's sense of humor. Verdun mud, they insisted, was something different, something synthetic and not natural. It clung to everything, forming an extra layer of skin on men in their clothing. It jammed weapons, and most annoyingly, infiltrated food and water rations. Thirst was then another problem, especially in the summer when battlefield temperatures rose. Men would go days without water, and it seemed fate was playing a cruel game. Water-filled shell holes were in abundance, but many were poisoned with decaying bodies, which claimed new arrivals desperate to clench their thirst. On June the 21st, the Germans would finally take Fort Vaux, but only after its garrison was forced to drink urine after going three days without water. 
On top of all this, of course, was the artillery, the circle of thunder which pulverized everything around it. By the end of December 1916, it is estimated that both armies had fired 12 million rounds of artillery over the course of the year, equivalent to about 1.35 million tons of steel, across a front just 26 square kilometers. This is on top of mortar rounds, grenades, mines, and gas shells, a level of expenditure that no one could have predicted in 1914. Indeed, it was the expenditure of artillery which gave Verdun its most infamous nickname, the Mincer, or the Meuse Mill. Characteristically, Verdun was the first truly industrial battle of the First Industrial War. For the first time in military history, machines and not human flesh were the main instrument of the fighting. Veteran recollections all tell a similar story about their experiences. Cramped in trenches, while the deafening thuds of shells shook the earth like a churning volcano. In the countryside, farmers recall watching nighttime exchanges with awe, and compared the macabre sight to one of Dante's circles of hell. When men were called on, the jump from the trenches was unlike anything they could have imagined. Maps were totally useless, as geographic landmarks simply no longer existed. Exposed to shell, bullet, and shrapnel, infantry were cut down or simply eviscerated from existence. Communication between friendly units was uncertain, so officers attempted to memorize orders by heart. When this failed, animals were employed as message carriers. Pigeons, and even dogs, German shepherds and terriers, were widely seen scurrying among the trenches. The earth, churned over time and time again, was impossible to cross, and assaults broke down more from internal logistics issues than enemy fire. A French aerial spotter flying over the battlefield compared the landscape to the humid skin of a monstrous toad, while others said it was like running across some lunar surface, punctuated by both human and animal remains. Considering how these men lived, maybe Termite Hill was an appropriate nickname after all. So as of this point, we've looked at the first two months of the battle, from the opening barrage on February the 21st until the end of March with Gosler's failures on the west bank of the Meuse. Now as I said, we will not spend the next several weeks going over things with a fine-tooth comb. Bigger things were happening elsewhere which will demand our attention. So to fully appreciate the scope of the battle, we'll use it as a guideline and jump in and out of it as events dictate. But it's important not to forget that as we shift our focus away, the fighting at Verdun did not stop for one moment. When the British and German fleets meet off Jutland on May the 31st, the French had just been slaughtered trying to retake Fort Douaumont. When Brusilov's steamroller smashes the Austrians in Glacia on June the 4th, Falkenhayn was forced to pull divisions out of Verdun to prop up his ally. And when the Anglo-French offensive on the Somme began on July the 1st, Douglas Haig was forced into action, because Pétain almost evacuated the East Bank after Fort Souville was taken. These are just a few examples, and we'll talk more about them in turn when we get to them. But as the Meuse mill continued to grind away, it also continued to chip at Falkenhayn's status. His influence in the army would slip with each passing day. And next week, we're going to leave Verdun and shift our focus to the east, where the first blow against his prestige was felt. In the east, the Russians were on the move, which hinted that maybe, just maybe, the vaulted steamroller was not yet out of gas. That's it for this week. Check out the website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources, email, and Twitter information if you wish to get in touch with me. Questions, comments, and feedback of any kind are always more than welcome. I'd like to give a shout-out to listener Sherry from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, who recently donated to the show. Thank you very much, Sherry. It is greatly appreciated. If you want to be like Sherry or other generous donors, you'll find the donate button on the homepage. There's no limit to your donation, but every little bit helps and goes a long way to keeping the show up and running. 
Another way to help out the show is to look us up on iTunes in the Apple Store and write us a quick 5-star review, which will help keep us afloat in the rankings and force me to continue churning out new episodes. Thanks for sticking by, and we'll see you again shortly.